Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have promised in your word to be present with us as we gather to work through the preaching of your word to strengthen our faith, to save souls, to sanctify your children. Lord, many of us here this morning are not, cannot say with the psalmist that we are calm and quieted with your presence. Lord, help us this morning through the preaching of your word. Calm our troubled minds, quiet the temptations and sins that so often assail us, and draw us near to you as a mother does her children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 19, uh, sorry, 1841, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, very famous writer, published his now famous lecture, Self-Reliance. In it, he called uh, all Americans to live independent from all things, including God. Emerson today is considered uh, one of the fathers of this modern idea of individualism that is so rampant in America and the West today. Throughout Self-Reliance, Emerson highlights three aspects of the independent man. Ambition, self-sufficiency, and optimism. This is the modern idea of the self. Pride is celebrated, right? And so humility is seen as a loss. Self-reliance, independence is a strength. And so depending on others, that's, that's weak. You are your, your greatest hope. You are your greatest hope for success and satisfaction in this life. This is the person the modern world sets as the goal and the standard of what it means to be successful and satisfied today. Pride, self-reliance, optimism. It's also the person that we Christians even are so often in our sin. It's the person we are so often tempted to be. Pride rules so often in every crevice of our hearts. John Calvin famously said, the heart is an idol-making factory. Emerson doesn't just describe modern man here. He describes us. He describes the weakness of our hearts. But this isn't the person that we see in Scripture, is it? Especially this psalm. This is not what we are shown here. This psalm shows us the Christian idea of self. Here we have a man who is not prideful, but humble. He's not self-reliant, but he's dependent upon God. He's not full of optimism in himself, but hope in God alone. So this is not a man who has found temporary satisfaction, but a satisfaction and contentment that has calmed and quieted his soul. For the Christian, we are are not defined by self-reliance and independence, but by faith and dependence upon God. A dependence that looks like humility. It looks like contentment. It looks like hope in God alone and not in ourself. It's it's a, it's a, a dependence that we were made for. 
And so it's one that offers true and lasting satisfaction. You know, the problem with the modern man of independence, the problem with what Emerson puts forward as the goal, what our culture today, right, puts forward as the goal, is not simply that it elevates man and the individual person, but that it elevates man onto the throne of God. You know, Nietzsche famously said, where is God, right? Where is God? He says, I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. He says later that what stands in place of God is the self. God is dead? That's the modern man. But this psalm shows us something different. In fact, this psalm doesn't really show us what man is, although it does that. It shows us more so who God is. Everything that David says here about himself, his humility, his contentment, his hope, is grounded in a doctrine of God, particularly the glory of God, as we will see. We see here uh, that a man is, is humble before God who is exalted, right? That he is content in the presence of God whose glory alone is all satisfying. So the world tells us that we are, we're made for us. And so often we as Christians, we live that way. Oh, we must be self-reliant. We must be independent. And this, this is, that's what will lead to true fulfillment, true satisfaction. But this psalm teaches us that because we are made to glory in Christ, the Christian's understanding of himself is not modern independence, but dependence upon God, which brings everlasting satisfaction. This is a dependence that begins with humility, blossoms into contentment and rests in hope. Those will be my three points this morning. Uh, Just as a note, our first point sort of lays the groundwork for everything that comes, so it's a little bit longer than the others, um, and we kind of even see that here in this psalm as well. So our first point this morning is the humble Christian. So the first thing this psalm puts before us is the humble Christian. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. You know, in the ancient Near East, the heart was, uh, it was the center of man. Right? It's the whole person in his inner being. He's saying here, David is saying here, that who I am at the deepest core of my being is not prideful. Here he says, lifted up or exalted. This is a startling admission of David, right? I mean, he's king. In Israel, he, he is exalted. We also see throughout Scripture uh, that he's not really known for humility. But here he's confessing that his heart remains low and humble. Timothy Keller famously defined humility as uh, self-forgetfulness. Right? He said it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And this is what David here is confessing. Secondly, he says that his eyes aren't raised too high. Uh, this is kind of saying the same thing, but here his desires are in view. Right? So, so he's, he's spoken of his posture, but now he speaks to the desires of his eyes, that they're not raised too high. It's important for us to note here that pride always begins in the heart. But what the heart wants, the eyes will desire. We saw that in the garden, right? Right? Eve is tempted to exalt herself 
to the place of God, right, to know good and evil, and she sees the fruit and sees that it is to be desired. Again, David, we see that in David as well. In his pride, he believes that he sees Bathsheba and he can just take it. And so his eyes desire her. You know, ultimately, what, what pride does in the garden, what it does in David, what it does in us, again, is not just exalting us, it exalts us to the place of God. And so humility is not just being low, right, but glorifying God. There's a positive aspect to it that we see here in this psalm. We see this in the very next sentence. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So because of his humble heart and posture, he now acts in humility, not occupying himself with things too great for him. The words used here for too great and too marvelous, these are words used throughout Scripture for God. So is the word lifted up, as well as raised high here in verse 1. Everything that David says here that he is not or that he hasn't done are all characteristics of God by his nature, by who God is in his very essence. In pride, it is the glory of God that is replaced with the glory of self. And in humility, it is the glory of God that leads men to forget themselves. So David, using all of these terms that apply to God, that are characteristics of God, he's reminding the Israelites that the reason he isn't these things, right? The reason he isn't exalted, the reason that he doesn't lift his eyes too high is because God is exalted. It is the great and marvelous things of God that lead David to say, I am not exalted. God alone is great and marvelous. You see how this flies in the face of, of modern man, of, of the modern idea of independence, the autonomous, independent individual, full of pride and ambition, uh, killing God, as Nietzsche would say, and placing man on the throne of glory. Who is truly independent? Who is truly self-reliant? Who is exalted and glorious in his very essence? God, not man. Truly exalted, high and lifted up by the nature of his being, God is glorious, not man. That is what it means when we say that God is glorious. It's often been defined, the glory of God, as the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. Do not miss this. When David says here that his humility is defined by not occupying himself with things too great and too marvelous, it is a humility that forgets himself for the sake of glorying in God who is great and marvelous. It is God's glory that grounds David's confession. But where do we see this glory? Where, where do we see the glory of God in Scripture? 2 Corinthians 4.6 gives us a wonderful answer to this question. Paul writes, God has given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So, so God has given the light, right? God has revealed His glory to us, but where? 
God has given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God that leads David here to say, I am not exalted, I do not see great and marvelous things, is most clearly seen in Jesus, the God-man who dies in our place. Once again, we're confronted with this thing that has nothing to do with the modern man. This, this idea that the modern man would outright just object to. The glorious God is seen in a manger? A baby isn't glorious, right? It's, it's weak. This glorious God is seen on a cross? A cross is not glorious, it's tragic. It's not exaltation, it's lowliness. In fact, it's not the lifting up of man, it's the death of man. How is this glorious? How can this image of God's glory lead David to say, as he looks forward, I have not sought great and marvelous things? How can it lead us to agree with him when great and marvelous things is a cross? This is the irony of the gospel, of course. Philippians 2, right, 8 through 11, being found in human form. Christ, he, but Jesus Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It is in the humble God-man, Jesus Christ, that we see the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections as those manifold perfections come to bear upon a sinful and dying world. It was the pride of man that reached out and took the fruit. It's the pride of man today who says that God is dead. And it was the humility of Christ in the form of man dying for sinners that shows us the glory of God. It is Christ. It is Christ who can say, as David says here, I am not exalted. I am not lifted up. I'm lowly. I am crucified. It is in the lifting up of Christ on the cross, in fact, that great and marvelous things are done. Because the only person who can repeat what David says here honestly, and without sin, is Christ. And we, prideful and sinful as we are, we need a greater David. David is not a man of humility. Yes, he's confessing it here. He has a moment of humility here, of course. But David is not our Savior. Contrary to Nietzsche, our God is not dead. Christ, who was born and who died, was raised. More than that, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the glory of God that doesn't exalt your pride, but forgives all of your sins if you have faith in Christ. This is the glory of God that doesn't give you all that your eyes desire, but gives you communion and peace with God by faith, no matter the trials and suffering and sin that your eyes see. It is the glory of God that alone leads us as Christians away from pride and self-exaltation self, uh, and towards humility, away from self-reliance and independence and towards total dependence 
on God. And this, contrary to the modern man, is true and lasting satisfaction. Unlike Emerson of, you know, the individual's independence built on pride and ambition in search of satisfaction in the self, the glory of God changes everything. The glory of God that we just spoke of, the great and marvelous things that David speaks of here, you were made for this. This is what you were made for. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. You were not made for your own exaltation. And so David says, my heart is not lifted up. You were not made to satisfy your own desires. And so David says, my eyes are not raised too high. You were not made to be God. And so you exist to occupy yourself, not with how great you are, but with the great and marvelous glory of God. That is what David is confessing here in this psalm. Paul agrees with him, whether you eat or drink, right? Whatever you do, do all the glory of God. This is true humility. To forget yourself, your pride, your desires, your ambitions, and to follow in the steps of Christ. To die to self for the glory of God. Humility isn't just you know, seeking self or, or not seeking self-praise. It's doing all things for the praise of God, for the purpose for which you were made. This is the secret of humility. It's the secret of David here. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Brothers and sisters, because Christ humbled Himself to the point of death and therefore released you from condemnation before God, you do not have to exalt yourself. You do not have to push others down to raise yourself up. In Christ, if you have faith in Him, you are sinless before God. That is your exaltation. That is your boast. Because Christ pursued the will of the Father, that was His desires, was to obey the Father in saving you, you can let your desires and your passions go, just as David confesses he has done here, because all of your greatest needs, all of your greatest wants are found in Christ and the forgiveness and peace with God with which He gives you. Emerson, Nietzsche, the culture around us, they're wrong. But often so are we. Where is your satisfaction? Where are you seeking fulfillment? Is it in your spouse, your kids, the the good days, right? The good days that you have, your job. True and lasting satisfaction is not found in you. And so depending on yourself, exalting yourself will only leave you empty. True and lasting satisfaction, it's found outside of you. It's found in the great and marvelous and glorious God. This is the God in whom we can trust and depend on to exalt us in salvation. This is how this psalm teaches us that because we are made to glory in Christ and not ourselves. The Christian's understanding of himself is not modern exaltation and pride, but a humble glorifying of God. 
This is true dependence upon God. Acknowledging that we are not exalted, right? And looking to Him as the only all-glorious, all-satisfying, living God. This, This dependence upon God, which expresses itself in humility, leads to, it flowers in, it blooms into contentment. This leads us to our second point this morning. So we've seen the humble Christian, right, and opposing the, the modern view of man, and now we see the content Christian. The Christian who is content, the content Christian. Verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So far, you know, the psalmist has talked about what he hasn't done, right? But now he turns to what he has done. He's calmed and quieted his soul. Notice again, we're talking about the soul here. So like the, the, the central part of who this person is, who David is, is just like the heart. We're not just talking about behavioral modification here. Well, what does he mean by this? What does it look like to calm and quiet the soul? Well, he further explains this with an image, like a weaned child with its mother. A weaned child, a child who has completed the weaning process, right, no longer nurses for food, this child knows two things. What he used to get from his mother, he's not getting anymore. Number two, he knows, though, since the weaning process has completed, that what he needs from her, he will get from her. Like, she will provide food for him when he is hungry. And so, sitting in her lap, this is the imagery, right, with his mother, sitting in his lap, uh, her lap, the child is content. He's not pulling at her shirt for nursing, because he knows that she will provide. And so, he sits in her lap, calm and quiet. It's imagery of contentment. The weaning process, though, it's not easy, is it? I mean, for a time, the baby thinks that the mother's taken food away. And so he cries and desperately begs for nursing. But once the weaning process is over, a whole world of food is opened to the child. And so David knows, just as the weaned child knows, that while the weaning process was hard, he can trust God to give him all that he needs. We see that the Lord must have took him through some season of withholding blessing, right? To wean him, <coughs> sorry, to wean him off of self-sufficiency and to teach him that God alone is his provider. But notice it's not that he's content knowing God will provide. That's not where his contentment is found here. That's not why he's quiet and calm. It's that he's content in the presence of God. As a child is with its mother. Charles Spurgeon, uh, commenting on this, says, To the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. He says, It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Blessed are those afflictions which subdue our affections, which wean us from self-sufficiency, he says, which teach us to love God not merely for what he gives us, but for who he is as the giver of all good things. 
This is the contentment of David here in this psalm. And it's also the contentment of the Christian as well. Jeremiah Burroughs' wonderful book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, he defines contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. How? How can we as Christians be content no matter what comes our way by the provident hand of God? How can David say here, given all that we know that David has gone through and continues to go through throughout his life, that he is content? Well, again, the answer is found in our doctrine of God. The language here of calm and quiet is the imagery of stillness. Throughout the Old Testament, God's children remain still. They remain calm and quiet throughout their trials because God is unmoved. That is, He is unchanging. By using this language, David is calling us to remember that who God is as calm and quiet. That he's, God's not fretting and sweating as you go through the hard providence he sends you, he sends your way. He's unchanging. And so even his hard providence is love. Because his love does not change by your circumstances. And so David is calling to mind this imagery found throughout the Old Testament that grounds the calm and quiet contentment of the children of God in the immutability, the unchanging nature of who God is. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you face in this life, if you lose a loved one, if your life is in complete shambles, you lose your job, you lose the love of friends or family, your, your future seems bleak, no matter what is lost in this life, if you have faith in Christ, your soul will not be lost. You will always have the presence of God. You will always have your Father. Because He, the one who calms and quiets your soul, is unchanging. What you need most in life, it's not money. It's not happiness. It's not self-sufficiency. What you need most in life is God. And this in Christ, He gives you. The weaning process, it may seem like He's abandoning you. I'm sure there are many in this room who can attest to going through that season. When the Lord weaned you off of self-sufficiency, off of the world, off of the idols that you had built, even good idols, as you come through them, you see that the Lord was using that time to draw you nearer to Him. Because all things around you are going to change. We live in a world full of changing things. We are changing people. And so we can be calm and quiet in all of this, because our God does not change. The American dream of independence, of, of self-reliance, will always leave you disappointed. You will be discontented with what you have because you will never have enough. 
You will never have enough in yourself or from this world to satisfy. You'll always be pulling at the shirt of the world. I want more. Adam and Eve weren't content, right, with what God gave them or with what God withheld. Isn't that so often the case with us? It's not so much what God gives, it's what He withholds. And so they sought to be God themselves. Ultimately, they weren't content with the presence of God. And David was the same. He wasn't content with all that God gave him. And so he sought out adultery, murder. And what did Adam do? What did Adam and Eve do in their discontent? They opened themselves up to a world of sin and misery that would never satisfy And they gave away a life with God, with the tree of life that would give everlasting joy and satisfaction. To be wholly dependent upon God is to humbly seek His glory and not your own. And this humility leads to contentment in the presence of the glory of God because you know the satisfaction of knowing Him and being loved by Him. And so even if your circumstances don't change, even if you continue to lose, you can say, if I have the presence of God, I have all that I need. And you know, even if things don't change, I will glory in Christ. I will magnify His name through this. You know, the reason you don't have contentment in the things of this world is not that you don't have enough of them. It's that they aren't Christ. And we, our souls, are made for the glory and the embrace of God. And all else will leave us wanting. This is how this psalm teaches us. That because we are made to glory in Christ, the Christian's understanding of himself is not contentment in the things of this world or your own strength or what you could muster, but contentment in the presence of God. That is what depending upon God and not yourself must look like today. Well, this is also why here, that the psalmist ends with a call not to hope in you, not to hope in the world, right? Not to hope in your own independence and self-reliance, but to hope in God. This brings us to our third and final point, the hopeful Christian. So we've seen the humble Christian, we've seen the content Christian, and now we see the hopeful Christian. Verse 3, O Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, First, notice, this is real quick, uh, that this is addressed to Israel, the whole nation. Uh, A man weaned from self and the world thinks only of others. What does humility look like for you? It looks like glorifying in Christ, glorying in Christ, and so the freedom to lose your own self for the sake of exalting others. It looks like being content in all things, and so the freedom to face all things with the focus not on yourself, but on those around you. And so David here turns away from himself, right? He turns away from himself to others. Well, what does he encourage the people to do? Hope 
in the Lord. That is, put their full trust in God. Rather than deluding themselves into thinking that they have the ability to solve all their problems. That they have the ability to satisfy all of their longings. You see, the hard providence of God in weaning you will either lead you to pridefully put trust in yourself, so you exalt yourself, to become discontented with God, or to hope in God alone. Notice he says, from this time forth and forevermore. This is hope both today and into eternity. So how does our understanding of who God is as exalted and glorious bring us hope? You know, we've seen that it humbles us. It helps us find contentment in his presence. But how does it give us hope? Well, David doesn't exalt himself today because he knows a day is coming when the Lord will exalt him. Don't we find this promise throughout the Old Testament that that the Lord will exalt the humble? David is content with the presence of God today because according to the promises throughout Scripture, he knows that that glorious presence will be realized in full when God comes in glory. This is why he speaks here of eternity from this time forth and forevermore. And you may notice that every time we've preached through a psalm of ascents, we've always ended here. We always tend to come back to glory, to eschatology. Sinclair Ferguson says these psalms are called the songs of ascents, not only because they consider the pilgrim's ascent to Jerusalem, but because they always culminate in the saint's ascension to the presence of God in glory. And this is true for this psalm as well. Again, it's why David doesn't simply call us to a today temporary hope, but an eternal one forevermore. And again, for the Christian, this points us to the glory of Christ. It is grounded in our doctrine of God. The exalted one humbled himself in Christ to the point of death, was exalted in resurrection, and now sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. It is this Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ, that will one day exalt us before the Father, as righteous in Him, forgiven by His grace, and satisfied sinless perfection. You know, we've kind of touched on this throughout, but it's very obvious that the modern man, with his self-reliance and independence, he's hopeless. The world reads this psalm and they see hopelessness. A man who is low and not exalted, a man who doesn't desire great things, a man who has had things taken from him, right, rather than things given. This isn't fulfillment. This isn't greatness. This isn't satisfaction. So there can't be any hope. And so the modern man looks at this. He looks at today. He looks at himself. He says, that's it. To his pride, his ambitions, to taking things, not losing them. That's true and lasting satisfaction. And so, of course, he's struck with discouragement. A recent study found that depression, especially in America, has increased dramatically in the last 50 years. All of us, believer or unbeliever, are made for something greater than ourselves. And yet our culture is defined by pursuits of lesser things, and it is killing 
modern man. And it will kill you as well. There must be something greater to live for today and look forward to tomorrow and forevermore. It is the glory of God in the face of Christ that is our hope. Because it is not just seen in a baby, in a manger. It's not just seen in a dying Savior, but in a Savior who resurrects and resurrects all those who have faith in Him. Who can resurrect us? Uh, Who can bring us to glory but one who is glorious? One who occupies himself with great and marvelous things like resurrection. In this way, Christ alone is our hope. Because Christ alone is all glorious. You can have hope today, Christian. If you have faith in Christ, you can have hope today no matter what you face Because all of the trials and suffering that humble you are from the hand of your exalted King, who will one day exalt you in His presence, where there will be no trial to face you, and where you will look upon your God in grace. You can have hope today because no matter your circumstances, true contentment is found in the presence of God. And because Christ resurrected and conquered death, one day you will be in the presence of God. And in the presence of this glory, all your self-reliance, all your independence will dissipate and dissolve. Christ is your hope, not you. That's the contrast in this psalm. Hope in God, not in you. And so take everything that I've said this morning about humility, about your contentment, about our view of the Christian life as dependent and not self-reliant, take all of those things and put no hope in them for your soul. Put your hope, not in your humility or your contentment or even your faith, but in the God in whom your faith is placed. We cannot adopt the modern notion of man's self-reliance and Christianize it. Emerson and the modern man today believe that satisfaction is found in in independence, in the autonomy of the self, in ambition and pride. And we've seen that true lasting satisfaction is found in humility and contentment. But if you make your pursuit of humility and contentment your hope, you too will be left empty and discouraged. Your humility will not save you. It will not fix all of your problems because you are not the solution. Your contentment might change your perspective, right? But it won't end your suffering. Because even a change in circumstances is a false hope. No matter how truly we forget ourselves in humility, no matter how truly we understand God's providence in our life, we will have no hope until we get our eyes off of ourselves and put them on the all-satisfying glory of Christ. And this is how this psalm teaches us Because we are made to glory in Christ, the Christian's understanding of him is a rejection of Emerson, Nietzsche, the modern man, for hope. Not optimism, but hope in God. Emerson's man of of self-reliance has come to define our culture. And many believe, Nietzsche, that, that God is dead and man sits on his throne. As hard as they might try, 
to convince the world this is true. Our God is an everlasting, living God. He will not be dethroned, and He will not share His glory with another. And this is a glorious comfort to us all in Christ. If you have faith in Christ this morning, you do not have to exalt yourself. You don't have to push others down to raise yourself up because the Father has exalted you in Christ. If you have faith in Christ this morning, you are free to be content in whatever circumstances. You are free to be satisfied wherever God has you because true contentment and satisfaction is found in God's presence and in Christ, that is where God has you. And so hope in God alone. You were not made for your own exaltation, but for the glory of Christ. Not for good circumstances, but for the presence of God. And nothing will satisfy you apart from that glory. Therefore, live for it. Right? You are exalted in Christ, so exalt Him. You are satisfied in Him, so be content in all things. You will one day see Him in glory. So have hope. God is all-glorious, so depend on Him alone. May God grant us a clear view today of His infinite beauty and greatness to humble us, to satisfy us, and to give us hope in Christ. Amen.